Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The following podcast contains content about stalking and sexual harassment that may be triggering or unsuitable for some listeners. Discretion is advised. Previously on Unraveled, The Stalker's Web. He bought his first computer when he was 12, and that was pretty much his life. He was brilliant. You have to understand, he brilliant beyond words. You block him, he's got like 300 other accounts. You never make this guy go away. The level of cyber stalking is incredible. He would use like key loggers. He would use um, like shell accounts. His life was pretty much causing torment to others. I think it's worse than any physical crime. It's just very easy to harass someone online. Last episode, while talking with Jason Christopher Hughes' mom, Cynthia, we learned two big breakthroughs about Jason. One is that he was rumored to have gone to New York after leaving Austin. But New York is a big place, and finding him there could be next to impossible for law enforcement. Especially considering the tools Jason has for concealing himself. We'll explore those later in this episode. The other big breakthrough was learning about Vanessa M., the original Vanessa who made that name particularly meaningful to Jason and who caused the fallout with his mom. But that rift and subsequent separation from her son meant that we weren't getting the full story from Cynthia. It's time to explore the post-childhood era of Jason's life to see what makes a criminal like this tick. From the online tech that drew him in to the relationships he embraced. 
What more is there to know about Vanessa M. and how she might have impacted Jason? In order to find out, we tracked down another source that might help fill in the gaps. Jason's younger siblings, Heather and Eric. He does have the ability to completely ruin your entire life. Once he's made up his mind, that's it. He puts you on this list and you are to be erased. He would make me pay. He's hurt people before. I deserve to die. He's one of the most dangerous people I've ever had to investigate. Just seems like wherever I go, there he is. From Discovery Plus, ID, and Joke Productions, this is Unraveled, The Stalker's Web, a six-part podcast investigating the story of one of the most prolific monsters to ever prowl the cyber world. And we'll see how the power that such a criminal has can lay waste to reputations, careers, relationships, and even lives. I'm Alexis Linkletter. And I'm Billy Jensen. When we first got in touch with Jason's sister, Heather, who's four years younger than Jason, it took some convincing to get her to speak with us. I have not ever given an uh, interview anything about my brother before. I don't think anybody likes opening skeletons of their closets of their family, and, like, um, it is painful for me. But once she opened up, it became clear pretty quickly that we were going to get a different version of the story than Cynthia gave us. My brother Eric and my brother and Jason and I all feel like we were swept under a rug by our mother. The things that she wanted to do in life and the things that were important to her didn't come with taking care of children. She left us with our grandmother and went and did them and we were without her. Heather admits that financial problems were part of why her mother gave her and Eric up for adoption, as Cynthia told us. But Heather says that Cynthia's reliance on her overbearing mom was just as big a factor. It was my grandmother's idea. My grandmother was a horrible woman, you know, so... Nana, she said she wasn't going to look at two little replicas of Bob Long the rest of her life, and that my mother better do something about it. And so she got rid of us. As a reminder... Bob Long was Heather and Eric's birth father, the musician who, according to Cynthia, left her for a female vocalist in his band when Jason was five years old. And that now left Cynthia with her mom as the major influence in her life. I can completely and totally understand why my mother um, is the way she is. Uh, My grandmother was a horrible drunk and she was a paranoid schizophrenic very difficult to live with. Um, She was a mean woman. And so, yeah, I do have sympathy for her. She came by it honestly, Uh, but she chose not to break the cycle and she chose to stay that way. Heather was three years old and Eric was one when they were adopted out to different families. But in a strange quirk, Heather and Eric ended up in the same small town. They were aware of each other, but they were largely kept apart. To be three years old and walk down the street in a a town with um, maybe 400 people in it and be told that's not your brother was a little tough. We were only allowed at each other's 
houses on uh, birthdays. And we had a lot of good birthdays. Heather became aware of Jason because he would call her adoptive mother to check up on her. I heard her on the phone with my brother once. And that's when she brought out my baby book. And she told me all about my adoption and my mother and my father. And she asked me if I would feel better if I met my brother and my grandmother. And I said, well, of course. <laughs> you know, of course I would love to see my mother, you know, or my brother and my, my grandmother. The stipulation was my birth mother, Cindy, not be there. At the age of 11, Heather got the chance to get reacquainted with Jason. She was allowed to go stay with him and his grandmother for two weeks while Cynthia was supposed to be out of town. You know, I got to meet my brother and we got to hang out and we got to make, you know, fudge together and learn about each other and laugh and record Doctor Who and giggle about it. It was fantastic having an older brother. This reunion with Jason felt long overdue, but it wasn't the only reunion Heather would have. I was there maybe 12 hours before my mother walked through the door. I was raised in a very Pentecostal home. And she gave me books on Wicca and paganism and um, the chakras. And my brother freaked out. He was very protective of me. As Heather learned more about her birth family, she began to see Cynthia, or Cindy as she sometimes calls her, in a very negative light. Remember how Cynthia said that Jason would live with her until he got mad at her, then went to his grandma's, constantly playing them off each other in a manipulative way? Well, Heather says the truth was very different. My mom, Cindy, would take him back, and she would be there for a week or two, and then she would take off again and leave him with our schizophrenic drunk grandmother uh, to raise him. My nana was a horrible alcoholic, And, I mean, she was violent. He didn't like being there. Who would? And so it was a very hard struggle for him. What happened to my brother at that age absolutely shaped every every single form of him. It's not like he just woke up and was this way. He, he, He was definitely created. We don't know whose version is more accurate between Heather and Cynthia. Either way, it's obvious Heather has sympathy for Jason based on the situation he grew up in. And she wants to see him in the best possible light. But she's also willing to acknowledge who he is. Oh, he was mean. Don't get me wrong, he's mean. He was always an ass. Always. He would banter me about how stupid I was and call me a leptonic troglodyte. And I would have to go look up the meaning of it just to win an argument. Um, There was kind of a clash, but he was my brother and we loved each other, so. um, I'm sorry. It's really hard. The same tough love dynamic would also play out years later between Jason and Eric who didn't get to meet his older brother until he turned 18. When I was growing up, 
I was always the, the nerdiest kid in my class. I had the best grades. And here I come and I meet this guy who makes me look just stupid, just dumb. And just, he was so much smarter than me. And it just fascinated me. I loved meeting him. He had a flair for the dramatic. Rather than calling you a dork or something, you would be a syphilitic cum, cum bubble. Or some, he would go all out with, with the insult. Um, I always found that charming. But then again, you know, I was looking up to him. He was my big brother. I was like, man, that man, he could swear. At this point, Jason was 23 years old and still living at home. But he was ready to make a move. And with an enthusiastic younger brother now eager to join him on an adventure, Jason had a destination already in mind. Jason and I took our money, we bought a Volkswagen bus, and we moved to Seattle together. I think there was more of a spiritual reason for us to go to Seattle. Um, my brother introduced me to the Order of the Temple of the Orient out there, which is Gnostic Catholic church, practicing magic, basically. Um, and the oasis was in Seattle. The basic premise of the entire philosophy is do what thou wilt, meaning not what you want to do, but what you were put here to do. Like everybody has a purpose. Everybody has some sort of drive in their life to do something. The move to Seattle took place in the early 90s, years before Jason would meet people like Travis and Lincoln. Jason was still finding himself at this point, and interestingly, Eric didn't see much computer activity during Jason's journey of self-discovery. He had a computer, I, I think. If we had one, I barely saw it. It was like in a closet. It wasn't even plugged in most of the time. We were doing different stuff back then. It was more about chanting and, and, and doing magic, and he had a whole temple set up in his, in his room. Where we were, where we could practice our, our stuff. But there was at least one thing Jason did with his computer, and it would change his world forever. I'm pretty sure that Jason met Vanessa online and was corresponding with her online. And uh, then they got together and met, and she moved in. She was his perfect match. She was just as brilliant as he is. But there were some things about her and the way she treated me and spoke to me that I didn't like. But that's just her being her. She would chide him and she would do the same thing to him. If anything, he got better because of Vanessa. He was kinder because, you know, someone cracked open that heart, got in there. He'd, he'd found a little bit of love, you know what I mean? Vanessa M. seemed destined to be a part of Jason's life for a long time. But Eric wouldn't be. After about a year in Seattle, the woman Eric was dating got pregnant. He realized he needed to make more money. I had a job in Montana where I could come in, pull easily six to ten grand in three months, and have a nice little nest egg for the baby when the baby arrived. When he found out I was leaving, he decided that I had ruined it for him there. And because he wasn't going to have a roommate, he wasn't going to be able to make it. I even offered, look, I'm going to be making enough money. 
I can keep paying my rent. But he thought I was abandoning him. And he told me straight to my face, I'm never speaking to you again. And hasn't spoken to me since. The event Eric is describing happened in 1996. Jason hasn't spoken to his brother in 25 years. Not a word. Not a thought. For him, it's black or white. There's no gray. And if it's wrong, then you're going to get just as angry if you spilled a little milk on the counter or you raped my cousin. The same. The same anger, the same response. Just like that, the brother Eric didn't have for 18 years had shut him out after just one year of bonding. All for making a sensible financial decision. And yet, Eric seemed surprisingly unsurprised at Jason's extreme reaction. It's the sort of move that seemed in character for him, because Jason was a man of extremes, a man of intense anger and of lifelong grudges. And apparently, Vanessa M. was his perfect match. What type of relationship did Vanessa M. have with Jason? Years later, after Travis made friends with Jason, he would hear him talk about Vanessa M. And what he said was memorable. He would talk about her um, as if she was a deity. Talk about how she'd run through giant towering flames and not burn her hair and um, things like that. Like, he really, uh, he really painted her in a very glowing light. Whoever she was, the name Vanessa was now branded into Jason's psyche and seemed to influence his choice of targets in the years to come. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. I'm very lucky to have a close relationship with my amazing mom, and I'm doubly lucky to be friends with some amazing moms. The thing is, this means that every year, right around this time, I get those panicked phone calls asking for Mother's Day gift recommendations from, obviously, their partners. So I was excited to learn about StoryWorth just in time for Mother's Day 2024. StoryWorth is an interactive way to preserve your loved one's stories for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question like, what do people get wrong about you? Or what's the most incredible trip you've ever been on? All your loved one needs to do is respond to that email with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. StoryWorth will send you a copy of your loved one's response, and after a year, StoryWorth compiles the stories and some photographs into a beautiful hardcover book that will last for generations. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. The moms in my life are big-hearted, hilarious, and they're all super storytellers, so they're going to love StoryWorth. I just know it. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift you'll all cherish for years. StoryWorth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash unraveled. That's storyworth.com slash unraveled to save $10 on your first purchase. When Eric left Seattle to return home to Montana, Jason and Vanessa M. also left, but they headed to Georgia, where Vanessa would become pregnant. This is the part of the story where Heather's account starts to match up with her mother's. They got a house together, and I remember he would call me, and he was so excited about the baby coming. He would literally call me while he was paint rolling the baby's room. He was very excited for that child to come. It felt like life was turning right for him, and he might, you know, be able to do this whole thing, you know. And uh, Vanessa never went to the doctor. And they lost the baby, and that devastated him. He cried a lot. Losing a baby really got him like it would anybody. Where Heather's version differs is that she doesn't believe there was any attack on Vanessa that caused the miscarriage. It's unclear how that idea got started or why. From what I understand, the baby died in the womb at like four months pregnant. Four or five. And by the time they found it, it was too late. Whatever happened, Jason felt he had no place left to turn. So he took Vanessa M. with him back to Montana and moved in with his mother and grandmother. Cynthia and Vanessa did not get along. And it eventually led to the big family fight that Cynthia told us about. But how that fight went down is up for debate. According to Cynthia, she was out of town when she got a call from Jason saying that Nana was throwing them out. She drove home and mediated the conflict. But Vanessa told a lie that caused a blow-up. Heather heard a different version of the story. Somehow Vanessa upset my grandmother, and Jason talked to her and had calmed it down. Well, then my mother caught wind from my grandmother and she drove all the way back and was screaming and yelling at him about how the only weekend that she got to go away to be with anybody to do anything, he had to pull this shit. And Vanessa said, you know, we had it dealt with. like, And that, you just don't talk to my mom like that. 
And she went off. And she's like, this is my house, my this, my that, and get out. And when Vanessa walked out the door, Jason walked with her. He said, if she goes, I'm going. She said, go ahead then. That was it. Again, we don't know which story of this event is the accurate one. This version casts Cynthia as the instigator rather than Vanessa M. And if it's true, you can understand why Cynthia told it differently. But does that mean Vanessa is an innocent party in this relationship? Not so fast, says Heather. I know she's a horrible, rotten person. She was short and controlling and bossy and, and nitpicky and naggy and bitchy. And she did not like his family. And she did not like his family around him. As soon as he started dating Vanessa, it all went downhill. Even though Heather puts plenty of blame on Cynthia for what Jason became, she still thinks Vanessa M. is a toxic influence on him. And Heather admits she didn't realize just how bad Jason had gotten. I didn't know he was sending new photos or ending marriages or any of that. We told Heather that Jason had also gotten people fired and had sent graphic death threats. Here was her response. I didn't know that he was doing the kind of that kind of stalking. It's disgusting to me. It's one thing to get on online and argue with someone. It's another thing to tell them you got a shotgun and you've killed people before. I've never heard that before. It just it blows my mind. Do you think your brother has ever killed anyone before? I wouldn't even have a clue. I haven't been around him. I've, I've kept myself and my children away from him. When Jason's victims began to connect years later and share their stories, word of Vanessa M. got around. Here's what we heard from Vanessa V., the first victim we spoke with in episode one. One of the people who dated him told me that she is a screaming psychopath. She's extremely unstable. She eggs him on. Um, They've never completely broken off their relationship. uh, So you never knew when she was going to show up or not. In light of these accusations, we wanted to give Vanessa M. a chance to respond. So we did some research and found a cell phone number connected to her. Hi, this message is for Vanessa. My name is Alexis and I am a producer and I'm working on a documentary about the crimes committed by Jason Christopher Hughes. And I've heard in my research that you were one of his close friends. Um, So I'd love to talk to you. If you're open to that, you can give me a call back. Thanks, Vanessa. Bye. Despite our inquiries, we never heard back. The status of Jason and Vanessa's relationship in the immediate aftermath of the fallout with Cynthia is unclear. We know that Jason went back to Seattle, where he met people like Lincoln and Travis. And he also had the weekend with Rachel Kay. But we also know that he spent time living in Austin, which is where he talked to Vanessa V and asked her for a threesome. As a reminder, here's what she told us about that. He was starting to get real insistent that I drive from Dallas to Austin out of nowhere. It's like, I really want to find someone to have a threesome with me and my wife. We're going to make a spiritual parakeet. You could be the left wing of the spiritual parakeet. 
Did you catch that word in there before the spiritual parakeet reference? Jason said he had a wife. We asked Heather if she knew who this was referring to. As far as I know, Vanessa and Jason were never married. As far as I know, his first wife was Amy. Apparently, somewhere along the line, Jason met a woman named Amy, and they got married. But just to complicate matters, it appears that Vanessa M. was still in the picture and was living with Jason and Amy in Austin. So could this be a polyamorous situation? Whatever was going on between them, they left in 2013 after Jason's car was set ablaze. Jason's attempt to cast suspicions on all of his targets ended up turning attention back onto himself. And he, Amy, and Vanessa left town before police could conduct a raid on his house. But where they went would be a subject of debate and rumors for his victims and his family. Heather heard several possibilities for where they were. They got a place in Costa Rica. They have a place in New York. They had the flat in Seattle. And he spent like six months a year in an ashram in India. I don't really know what he was doing. As we mentioned in our last episode, Jason's mom also heard they went to New York. The lead appeared solid. The FBI were honing in, but Jason had retreated into the most populous city in the U.S., along with a wife who appeared willing to protect him. And most importantly, he had plenty of sinister cyber tools that could keep authorities from tracking him down. By now, we've heard from three of Jason's victims about what he did to them. And we've uncovered more about his upbringing, giving us a glimpse into why he may have done these things that he did. But what we haven't fully explored is how. How was Jason able to hide himself and evade authorities in so many different states for so many years? Jason Christopher Hughes was a predator. He even saw himself that way, getting a tattoo of the thylacine, wolf-like predatory marsupial that was thought to go extinct in the 1930s. But creatures go extinct when they can't adapt to their surroundings. Jason has proven he can adapt very well. He started internet stalking around the year 2000, but has continually added new online tools and techniques to his arsenal. This extinct marsupial, as he came to be known, is also very smart staying just beyond the reach of authorities. And often in these situations, officials are left hoping a cybercriminal will make that one mistake that allows them to pounce. Until then, the cybercriminal can hunt their targets with devastating effect. We want to take a moment to explore some of these cyberstalking tools because it's important for you to know how these criminals work and understand why it's so hard to stop them. Jason's friend Travis gave us a glimpse into some of these techniques in episode three. Here's one of the things he told us. He made tons of accounts, pretending to be other people. And so if if some stranger emails you, it's like, hey, you know, I got your email address from somebody else you might know, and I've got a question for you. You you know, you can ask people stuff. People want to help, right? That's the kind of things that he would do, just kind of collecting information about people 
phony accounts like this are known as sock puppets, and Jason would use them to gather intel about his targets. They were also useful for emailing nasty allegations about someone to their employer or to their spouse. And as Travis learned, Jason used sock puppets to attack and smear people in online forums. He would pose as dozens of different users and make accusations against someone. Anyone watching would begin to side with his perceived majority, not realizing it was all one person. And here's the thing. If you want to find out who's behind a sock puppet account so that you can expose them as a fraud, you'd have to contact the internet service provider for that info. And without a warrant, good luck with that. Under the Stored Communications Act, service providers are prohibitive from freely sharing the information of their customers. It's often very difficult, if not impossible, to identify those behind the curtain, so to speak. That's Mark Lanterman. He's a former member of the U.S. Secret Service Electronic Crimes Task Force and founder of Computer Forensic Services in Minneapolis. The internet can have a strange effect on people. And I, I don't see this trend uh, of cyber stalking subsiding anytime soon. Crime is becoming dehumanized. And I think that that's why the internet has as much crime occurring on it as I think the you know, non-internet crimes. The big challenge, as Mark sees it, is the difficulty in separating the bad from the good. For instance, here's Vanessa V talking about one of the tactics Jason used against her. Jason has been sending emails from this Canadian company called Hushmail, which is supposed to, you know, hide IP addresses and keep emails completely anonymous. An IP address identifies a specific device at its specific location when it's using the internet. But some services will hide that information for you. On the surface, it might seem like an anonymous email service is inviting bad people to do bad things. But digital anonymity is crucial in many instances. Like any tool, it can be used for good, it can be used for evil. You know, whether it's an, an axe, a baseball bat, or anonymous remailers, if you have a, a woman who, who needs to uh, communicate with an abuser, that victim doesn't want to be traced. So the way you, you do that is use an anonymizer, use an anonymous email service. Maintaining privacy, whether for communication, financial transactions, or location services, is a critical part of internet safety. But that also makes it ripe for abuse. For instance, there's another tool Jason used that Mark Lanterman says we should all be using in order to protect ourselves. It's a VPN, a virtual private network, and it can help hide your online activity from cyberstalkers. And it's as simple as downloading an app and paying a service fee. But even though you can use a VPN to keep you hidden from bad guys, the bad guys can use one to hide themselves from authorities. A VPN encrypts uh, a user's internet traffic end-to-end, but it also allows the user to route his or her internet traffic through other servers, through other geographies. Attackers will, uh, will use the VPN to log in to the internet create false accounts under fictitious names, 
malign these victims. And then when you try to track me down through the use of subpoenas or search warrants, good luck uh, identifying me through Argentina or through Russia or through China. It's darn near impossible to identify a suspect because of the use of a VPN. So let's say you take the precaution and are hiding your IP address from cyberstalkers. That's a great first step. But there are still ways they can monitor your activity and breach your accounts if you're not careful. In our interview with Travis, he talked about Jason stealing people's login credentials at the University of Washington by using a keylogger. Here's how he described this device. There was an old connection type that would connect your keyboard to the computer. You could get these little boxes that you just put between the keyboard and the computer, and it would read all the keystrokes that went in there. These days, keyloggers are much more subtle. They're typically software that's downloaded onto your computer, and a hacker can often trick you into installing it for them. Here's Mark Landerman. A keylogger can be downloaded, installed without an individual's knowledge, relatively easy to deploy. What you can do is you send them a phishing email. Hey, I thought you'd want to take a look at this. You trick your victim into clicking on a link and the link downloads the keylogger. So now everything that the victim is typing, like URLs and usernames and passwords and all of that, go back to the assailant. Hackers can even be sneakier by using a trick known as spoofing. This is where someone sends an email or text that looks like it's coming from someone else, maybe even someone you know, making it that much more likely that you'll click on that dangerous link. Spoofing is easy to do, as Mark Lanterman explains. It's very easy to send spoofed emails. Uh, you know, there are services online that let you send an email from what appears to be any account for a couple of pennies. It's a service that's for sale. And again, it's very hard for law enforcement to backtrack on that or to trace that back to the, to the suspect. And there's one technology we haven't touched on yet that remains a treasure trove for internet criminals, the dark web. It's still unknown if Jason Hughes was using it to stalk his victims, but it's possible. And you need to understand what it is and how it works. The material on the dark web can only be accessed through a special browser called Tor. Spelled T-O-R, Tor stands for the onion router because of how it uses layers to maintain secrecy. When a user logs into the Tor browser, his or her internet traffic is routed through multiple servers, through multiple geographies, you know, multiple political countries. By doing that, you are reducing the ability, if not eliminating the ability of law enforcement agencies to track who is at the other end. While there are legitimate services on the dark web, it has also become a haven for illegal activity. Looking for a hacker? You can find one to hire. Want to commit financial fraud against someone? You can buy their credit report for a few bucks a product of the Equifax breach of 2017. 
Some sites even suggest they'll harm someone physically for a fee, though many such sites are scams. But the idea of using internet technology to create physical danger is a scary prospect. And the truth is, it can be done without going into hidden corners of the internet. A handful of years ago, we saw a lot of headlines about one highly illegal tactic that has been used in the world of cybercrime, swatting. Name for the SWAT team that is falsely summoned. Swatting is when an individual calls 911 and says, oh my gosh, there's a, there's a guy with a gun. Oh, and he's, he's, he's killing people and it's at this address. And the cops show up, kick in the door while you're eating your, your, your morning oatmeal, uh, totally oblivious to it. So it's a, it's a way to get someone else to do your dirty work for you. And in this case, they have guns. Jason Christopher Hughes tried his own twist on this when he sent the cops in pursuit of all his victims after the car arson. Fortunately for his targets, it backfired. Another sinister ploy is called doxing, which is the posting of someone's personal information online, such as their address. If it's done under false pretenses, like requesting an encounter through a fetish website, for instance, it can lead to a volatile situation. It's like writing a former girlfriend's name and phone number on the wall in the men's room at the local uh, you know, restaurant. The problem is that it can, it can become incredibly dangerous. I've been involved in well over a dozen cases in which doxing was used to track down and sometimes hurt uh, 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 individuals. With all these tools, tricks, and techniques at his fingertips, Jason Christopher Hughes was in position to continue making his victims' lives hell while thumbing his nose at officers. But here's the thing about criminals. Given enough time, they all make mistakes. And Jason would be no exception. His simple blunder would relate to something that Travis told us about when he first met Jason. Jason would use any open Wi-Fi. I don't think he paid for internet ever. As the FBI poured over Jason's communications, they managed to unearth an IP address that wasn't hidden. It was connected to a house on Staten Island. That house was not occupied by Jason or anyone associated with him. But with a little further investigation, it was determined that the house next door belonged to Jason Christopher Hughes' in-laws. Next time on Unraveled, The Stalker's Web. Hi, how you doing? We're looking for Jason Christopher Hughes. The FBI showed up at my work unannounced, which was like insanity. I was actually really excited because I knew that a federal law enforcement agency was going to have a lot more resources than I would. Of course, this set off a bunch of angry threats and such. I was in fear for my safety, and I don't want to worry about retaliation. How does it make you feel, the idea of him going to prison for this? I think that prison is going to create a, a serial killer. I guess my greatest fear at this point is that I'll lose my life again. Unraveled is produced by Joke Productions for ID. 
The executive producers of this podcast are Joke Finciun, Biagio Messina, and Jeff Koontz, along with myself, Alexis Linkletter, and Billy Jensen. The executive producer for ID is Tim Bainey. Additional producing and writing is by Eric Smith. Our editor is Aaron Frisha. The music and score that you've heard in this podcast is by Biagio Messina, Dave Pellman, in the Alibi and Nimble Libraries. I want to extend a special thanks to Heather and Eric for sharing their story with us, and to Mark Lanterman for his expertise. If you or someone you know has a story to share about Jason Christopher Hughes, you can email us confidentially at unraveledtips at gmail.com. You can also visit survivingjason.com for more information and helpful resources on cyberstalking. Make sure to check for episode six next week, wherever you get your podcasts. It helps a lot when you subscribe, rate, and review the podcasts that you enjoy. Thank you for listening and for your support. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.